Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part three of this three-part interview on revised USP Chapter 797, William Zelmer talks with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Castango about practical approaches for attaining compliance. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Fresenius Cobby. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Patricia Keenley, Ashley Duty, and Eric Costango, who presented a session at the 2019 ASHP Summer Meetings on ensuring compliance with the revised USP Chapter 797. Patty is Director of Accreditation and Medication Safety at Cardinal Health Innovative Delivery Systems. Ashley is Clinical Pharmacy Operations Manager at Children's Mercy in Kansas City, Missouri. Eric is President and CEO of Clinical IQ LLC and Critical Point LLC in Madison, New Jersey. Ashley, uh, please give us a brief overview of your practice setting at Children's Mercy Hospital, Kansas City, how it's set up for sterile compounding. Yeah, so at Children's Mercy, we have two hospitals, one of which is about 315 beds, the other which is much smaller, only about 40 beds. So we kind of have two very different situations there. And then we have a lot of clinics. Um, and so within our system, we have multiple compounding suites. Um, several of which have a positive and negative buffer room with the anteroom, uh, one of which does not have a negative room, um, just has an anteroom and a positive buffer room. And then we also have two segregated compounding areas, one in our operating room and one in one of our outpatient clinics. Uh, so we, we really get to take advantage of a lot of the 797 chapter in evaluating all those different areas. Ashley, as I understand it, you've been in your position at Children's Mercy Hospital for five years or so. Uh, I'm curious, how did you get interested in sterile compounding operations as the focus of your career? Yeah, so I did my pharmacy administration residency at the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, not by choice, but by assignment, the administration residents are in the clean room for their staffing. So I really got exposed to a lot of my initial work as a resident. Um, and then when I arrived at Children's Mercy, they had a really very strong focus on safety in sterile compounding, which was fantastic. They had an IV workflow management system way before everybody else did. But they really had some gaps in their 797 compliance that I've been spending, frankly, the last five years addressing and getting us up to speed. So it was a lot of need. Um, and then, you know, you just develop a passion for the thing that you work on all the time. So that's how I got interested. Mm -hmm. Well, let's discuss uh, something that was a part of uh, the program here on this topic. Uh, uh, the concept of using a gap analysis to identify areas uh, that need attention for compliance with the new 797 requirements. Give us a sense of how to successfully use the gap analysis approach. Eric, let's start with you. Sure. You know, I, I, I believe that, you know, in, in order for you to improve, you have to know what's wrong. And, and using a standardized tool, and, you know, and there's been a number of uh, tools that have been developed, you know, things for ASHP, certainly with Critical Point, 
but it allows you a, a benchmark to know where you are in this journey because you can't improve without knowing where you where you have deficiencies and it's it's not a judgment thing it's just a continuous improvement so using this tool as a diagnostic to your patient, which is your clean room and processes and your people, allow you to, right, if you, you, you can't ma manage what you can't measure, right? And so this gives you a very good measurement tool, objective tool, to be able to say, where am I in this journey and still what do I need to accomplish? So I think any tools that we can use to make us more successful, but ease the burden in, in not creating your own tool because <laughs> having created several myself, it takes, it takes hours and hours and hours, weeks of time um, because it's quite a challenging process, sure. but I think it's, it's an important management tool. Well, actually, I'd like you to comment on this matter of using a standardized tool that's out there versus customizing something for your particular institution. Yeah, I think where we've had the need to do more of a custom tool is to keep track of some of our assignments um, and some of the differences between our sites um, and uh, how we're interpreting certain pieces, how we're going to meet the requirements, and then also to speak to our C-suite about what our needs are and, you know, look at, we have these hundred items that we need to take care of and, you know, they think sometimes they, you know, are removed from the medication preparation process and they think we just get all these things done, um, but especially when you start to need capital or people to achieve these things and achieve them well, it's, it's great to have a gap analysis tool regardless of, you know, how you get there, um, to use that as a communication method. We've also started taking our compliance percentage for towards the new standards. We do it for 800, 795, 797, and reporting it as a metric in our lean huddle process that we can communicate when our leaders come and do safety walk rounds and things and say, hey, we're at 50% compliance, and, and they'll start to engage a conversation. How are you going to get to the next step? Mm -hmm. Well, Ashley, at your hospital, uh, tell us what are the two or three most important issues that you're tackling to ensure compliance with the revised 797 standards. You know, one of the things that we continue to work on is our personnel training and certification and uh, even just the record keeping with that. Uh, we struggle with, you know, what do we need to keep track of on paper? How are we going to find all of those records when the Board of Pharmacy comes and they want to see, you know, how did you train, how did you train Joe to make uh, compounded preparation. He's making parenteral nutrition today. How do you know that he can do that safely and aseptically, frankly? So uh, that's one of the things. And then with the increased frequency of every six months, we're also balancing what is the right number of staff to have trained in the sterile compounding area. So we need to prepare for challenging situations. If there's an ice storm on New Year's Eve, I need to have somebody there who's gonna help take care of our patients. But I also don't want to be diluting my education and training efforts over you know, 150 staff members to make sure that they're all trained. So doing that every six months um, for aseptic testing and then retraining them um, every 12 months and keeping track of all those records is certainly taking a lot of efforts. The other thing that we've been working on, it's a, just an ongoing process and not necessarily new for the revised 797, is our cleaning processes. And who does them and 
how they're doing them and how do we ensure they're doing them well. And I think the increased monitoring of the monthly surface sampling is going to help us monitor that and uh, make some tweaks. Right now, we actually do our uh, daily floor cleaning is done by our environmental services staff at our hospital, and that's been challenging to work on, and their turnover is very high in their department, and so how do I ensure that I have competent personnel? Um, and then our monthly terminal cleaning, we've actually started outsourcing to another company that's going to be doing surface sampling with their cleaning. Um, and they spend more time, they're not worried about taking care of patients when they're there, they're just focused on cleaning, and they frankly give us feedback on what we're not doing uh, well enough on our daily cleaning. So I think there's a, there's a lot of different things that we're working on at my hospital, but those are two of the things that we've sure. been focusing on. We've talked about uh, beyond use dating in uh, an earlier segment of this program, but I'd like to come back to that. And uh, starting with you, Ashley, uh, what are some of the particular implications at your institution? And if you could, comment on a nursing perspective as well as a pharmacy perspective. Yeah, I think one of the things we've struggled with nurses is explaining to them that beyond use dates are not the same as infusion times and what that means. So if they have a continuous infusion and they have a large bag that they need to run it for over 24 hours, maybe they run it for two days, three days before they do their tubing changes, that that's okay, um, that that's not the same as the beyond use date coming from the pharmacy. And even our pharmacists struggle to understand what that means. Um, but, you know, we were talking about it earlier that the beyond use date really is about the pharmacy compounding piece and not about the administration piece. Yeah, the compounding and the storage piece. And right. I used to put, in, you know, that the terminology gets very confusing to nursing mm -hmm. and beyond use date is, you know, a term that they weren't trained on and don't see. I used to put on the IV labels, do not hang after. Right. You don't necessarily have to use the exact wording unless your state requires that, and I don't know of any that do, but there may be some. Um, but that seemed to be a lot clearer to people that they still had that opportunity that you know, it wasn't gonna be something that, that they had to stop in the middle of an infusion. Of course, there may be some drugs that do from a stability standpoint, right. but the vast majority aren't. So just, you know, the reminder bill about the beyond use states combine a, 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 it's two factors, chemical stability and microbial sterility. And it really, the microbial sterility beyond use states that's defined in the chapter assumes chemical stability, that you always have to make sure that that chemical is gonna be good chemically during that beyond use state that's defined in the chapter. So I now, for the category two, you can take advantage of four days room temperature. So it solves a lot of the challenges we had with the 48 hours, mm -hmm. which was in the current chapter. And then certainly the one extra day on the refrigeration, because again, we have a, this chapter is used by a variety of audiences and like home infusion is challenged with the logistical shipping of medications. So as long as we take in, into consideration those factors, then I think we're good. One of the beyond use date changes for pediatrics and something that we've been doing for a long time is using multi-patient stock dilution bags. Um, and something that we'll be doing is we can use those initial beyond use dates, but once we spike into them, you know, that and that stock bag will have a 12 hour beyond use date and you can see the details in the chapter. But that'll be a little bit of a different um, practice change for pediatrics, but it's something that wasn't in the previous version of 797 that now is specifically addressed. 
But I think that will be good for you, Ashley, because yeah. I think now it clarifies a very important practice that was happening only in the pediatric hospital. I so, agree. so now you'll you'll be able to make those bags ahead of time and be able to not have to make them every single day mm -hmm. and, and to use them safely. And you know, it leads itself to one other thing that people need to be very cognizant of. You need to take a look at all of your policies and procedures Absolutely. and forms that you're using yes. because there will be these changes yeah. and that type of practice or a number of other things that need to be adequately reflected in the documentation that you have. So the documentation pieces that are in the chapter, policies and procedures, SOPs as they're de uh, described in there, your master formulation record, which is your formula of what you're doing, compounding records, all of those things need to be adequately and accurately reflected in your policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. You know, the w way I like to describe it to people is that if I came into your pharmacy and I couldn't hear you, because how we train pharmacy, right? See one, do one, teach one. We, we you know, we do uh, tribal lore, verbal tradition. Could I pick up your SOPs and, and, and know exactly how to do the job that you're asking me to do without any explanation? And I think that's the way we need to start looking at our SOPs and use them as part of our source of truth and not depend on, well, Ashley taught me this way or Bill taught me that way, because we always do the, this apprenticeship model. And, and this is where I think we get the variations in practice and, yeah. and, and we lose standardization. It's the standardization and the reproducibility Ability. of what we're doing. Yeah. Right. So if I came in, could I make the same mm -hmm. IV that Ashley made or right. Eric made the day before? Right. And is, does your SOP explain that in enough detail that it, it's self-explanatory? Sometimes we get people from other health systems, you know, technicians, change place, workplaces in the city, and they'll say, well, they knew how to make IVs at that hospital, so they must know how to do it here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We have to start from scratch and assume that they know nothing, and they can prove that they know how to do aseptic technique, but they really need to understand our SOPs and how we date things and prepare things, et cetera. As we draw our conversation to a close here, I want to give uh, each of you an opportunity to uh, share with listeners any other comments you have. And, and let me ask you to think about particularly common questions you're getting at this stage from practitioners about the new standards. Uh, Patty, would you like to start? I, I know the exact number, Bill, because <laughs> the standard came out on Saturday and I started counting from questions outside of the folks who I work with and I had 68 emails by Sunday evening. Wow. So in about a 36 hour period, and that hasn't stopped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people were asking us last night or p other hospitals in my cities will ask me about is, what am I gonna do if I'm not ready on December 1st of 2019? Hopefully people have already started doing a lot of this work. I know we did a lot of this work. We were waiting for a few minor details to get firmed up before we made any drastic changes uh, frankly, around beyond you stating, but um, hopefully people have done a lot of work, but it's about progress. Um, and hopefully someday you'll be perfect, but your journey is never over. It's a you know continuous process. Um, and I know that we've been talking about too, it probably depends on how involved your state board of pharmacy is and your compliance and where maybe you already are in this journey. Um, and so I think December 1st is holding a lot of weight in people's mind. Um, but hopefully, you know, you see these standards and you should be trying to get there hopefully as quickly as possible. It's not about waiting until December 1st and then, okay, now we have to do all of these things. You know, like Patty, I, I have been inundated with a lot of questions and, and um, you know, one of the things in the, in the revised chapter that is that 
one of the things that's not in the revised chapter that was in the 2008 chapter was the shall and should document. And I don't know if everybody took advantage of that document because that was kind of a cheat for if you wanted the <laughs> if you wanted the uh, the Reader's Digest version, the condensed version of the chapter. Um, you know, I did this exercise uh, for someone, and I I searched for the word must in the new chapter, and there's 554 instances. Now that seems like an overwhelming number of of um, of musts, but I think if you can put it in perspective and focus, this gives you your roadmap so you can start to integrate this new set of standards, and it's really not new. I mean, let's, let's, let's be clear. This evolution in the standard, and so you understand what now has gone from either a should to a must, or maybe a must to a should, because there has been some changes in the chapter. And, and again, I think reading the chapter has to be one of the first things so you know what is expected, not what you heard Patty or Ashley or Eric say on this podcast, but let that, let hopefully this podcast augment what, what the chapter says um, so you can be successful. That concludes part three of this three-part Engaging the Experts interview. The other two parts focus on key changes in USP Chapter 797 and what's needed to get your facility ready. To listen to these, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash USP changes, or you can access them via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at the initiative website.